Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. I try every week to bring you people that I really think are expert in the field, and today I I think I've done myself here. Um, My guest today is Dr. David Fawcett. Dr. David Fawcett is a social worker, a sex therapist. He has a consulting practice in Fort Lauderdale, specializing in men's health. He does a lot of work with gay men. He's the author of Lust, Men, and Meth, A Gay Men's Guide to Sex and Recovery. And this is really a lot of what we're going to talk about. His book explores the intersection of men, drug use, and high-risk sexual behavior. Um, He presents all over the world on sex addiction, on HIV AIDS, on um, meth and and stimulant addictions. And Dr. Fawcett and I have done some speaking together. So I am really excited to have you here, David. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here as well. And I am in California and you are in Florida. And we don't even need to say what time of year it is, but I think it's warmer in New York. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. But uh, such is our crazy weather system. So, David, um, this is a show really about uh, co-occurring addictions, about drugs and sex. This is a discussion about how sexual behavior and drug use can become paired because that's that's Dr. Fawcett's expertise. And uh, he's been studying and working a lot with gay men, but also with other uh, with straight men and other people who have amphetamine and cocaine and addiction issues related to sex. Um, Dr. Fawcett, what, what kinds of things are you seeing out there? What are we facing? And, and, and even more importantly, maybe for this group, you know, what, what kind of combination do you see with sex and drugs that people should be watching out for if they're just casually playing out there? Yeah, thanks, Rob. I, uh, I think we are in the middle of a kind of a very dangerous trend. Um, and that is that for about the last 20 years or so, we've seen a real steady rise of the use of stimulants and particularly methamphetamine. Uh, along with cocaine, actually. Cocaine is coming coming back in conjunction with sexual behavior. And I don't think that's necessarily something new, but uh, the rates at which we're seeing it, and I think what's made it different now is the uh, difference in the what kind of methamphetamine is coming in, because it's much higher grade, much purer, and I think it's getting people much more into an addictive situation sooner. Well, now, I, I remember I remember stimulants from my uh, hippie youth, or post-hippie youth as more of a disco person, but um, 
And, you know, we would go dancing when we did those drugs, or we would clean our house, or we would do a lot of homework. I would get all of my papers done. But right. sex never occurred to me. I always thought that amphetamines made sex kind of a softy. Is there something different that makes it different now than when I was younger? Um, well, a couple of things. One is that the drugs are different. They're, they're much stronger um, because they're coming now from the Mexican drug cartels who have factories that basically turn out pure methamphetamine. So that, that's one difference. Um, and the other thing, I think methamphetamine and stimulants can really be bonded with all kinds of behaviors. So I, I know many people who use them for weight loss, weight control, for, for um, wakefulness, uh, and, and never really associated with sex at all. But I think if you uh, do practice sex on it, and it does increase sexual desire, uh, that bonding gets, that's even more strong to the point where people become dependent on using the stimulants to feel any sexual arousal at all. And just as a footnote to what you just said, uh, the, the, the irony of all this is that it does cause erectile dysfunction while at the same time stoking uh, sexual desire. So, but we have all these nice drugs now that decrease erectile dysfunction like Cialis and uh, uh, Vi Viagra. And, and I'm wondering if people are using these together. Absolutely. Um, even, even younger, uh, I work mostly with gay men, even younger gay men are, are using that. And I found a trend recently. They're just uh, some of those drugs don't seem to be working anymore, so they're going right to uh, injectables like Trimex to be able to get an erection. Uh, and these are guys in their 20s. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, uh, that's a, a, a sort of last-ditch effort when a man can't get an erection. They will literally inject something into his penis to make it erect. And that just tells me how desperate these men are. Um, yes. So I, I want to say, David, you know, we've talked a number of times together. And I always, one of the things I always think to myself, you know, I have heard you say, you know, that the drug cartels are doing what they're doing, and we're seeing not just home-baked, home-brewed uh, sinus medication meth. We're now right. seeing exactly. chemically, you know, chemical factories creating meth and shipping in this country. But what I hear about on TV is the opioid addiction. I don't, or the opioid crisis. I don't hear much about this in the news. Do you really? Is it just that this is a big part of your practice, or why aren't we? Why don't we hear more about meth and coke these days? Well, I think you've hit on something really important. And I think the, the opioid crisis is, of course, uh, incredibly serious, but it's kind of getting all, it's soaking up all the oxygen in the room. And I think if you look just under the, the bright, brightness of the opioid addiction, there's a lot of statistics around in almost every state in the country where meth busts, meth overdoses are actually outpacing opioids. So I think it's a matter of kind of, can we uh, chew gum and talk at the same time? Because they, we have two different issues going on here. And often, increasingly, in the same population, which is something we never used to see when you and I were in the discos, there was speed or there was kind of opiates. But now we're seeing the same people using both. And what what is different about meth and sex uh, and that combination than, let's say, I don't know, uh, getting high with on pot or or maybe doing a party drug? What, what is it about the meth that is so destructive? Um, the difference, uh, if I compare it to cocaine, say, which is another stimulant, which is derived from the coca plant. It's a natural molecule. It's smaller. Uh, it sits on that dopamine receptor, which, which both meth and cocaine do, for uh, 15 minutes or so. So the high is relatively short. Methamphetamine is a synthetic molecule, quite toxic to the brain. Uh, and it sits on those receptors for 9 or 10 hours. So it gives a much longer period of high and it also kind of flushes out the dopamine from those neurons so it it actually is uh giving a, a really big surge of dopamine uh, and then causing a depletion with all the consequences of that as well 
So now you're talking, I think you're talking about the brain. I hear this word dopamine and receptors. And so maybe you could take a step back and just say like uh, in a very sort of clarifying way, simplistic way, what, what, what are you talking about? (laughs) So I know what you mean, but yeah, sorry about that. So, so the brain has a number of different uh, chemicals, neurotransmitters, and dopamine is one that basically when it's uh, released by the brain, makes us feel good. And, and we have what are called natural rewards or releases of dopamine, like food and belonging and even sex. orgasm, sex, exactly. All of those things help us, they reward behaviors that help us survive as a species. Uh, methamphetamine comes along and kind of hijacks that whole system and starts linking extremely high amounts of dopamine and kind of unnatural rewards, including sex and meth combined into this like a kind of nuclear option of um, of dopamine release. So it's this torrent of of uh, feel good chemical that is a rush for people. Well, I, I happen to know a little bit about dopamine, and I happen to know this is my big my big knowledge here that dopamine is uh, what controls, as you said, our feeling pleasure. And the most pleasure we can feel as human beings without taking drugs is orgasm. So I'm assuming that the most dopamine I can release from a human, any human act or experience without taking drugs would be having sex. Yes, that's absolutely true. So that might reinforce some of the work that I do in terms of just pure sex addiction, that there are people who use the dopaminergic release, the pleasurable release, not just around the sex itself, but the idea and the fantasy of sex to drive themselves into kind of a spaced out uh, fantasy state where they're not really making good choices. And that is the dopamine and all the other stuff that comes along with it. So your folks must be even more impaired. Well, uh, it's very serious. And I think uh, there's a huge overlap between sex addiction and, and stimulant addiction because it really works very similarly in the brain. And just like sex addiction, a lot of the people that use stimulants for sex have that uh, ritual and that craving and desire, almost uh, building up before they ever use the drug. Uh, their kind of their brain is lighting up in terms of feeling uh, a mood altering effect. So that that desire is really an important piece of this. Well, now uh, let me let me try to walk this little line of prejudice, potential prejudice. So you said that gay men are particularly apt to do this meth and sex thing, and although it's certainly spread out to the larger population. Um, And then you said that there's a predisposition for wanting to desire feeling better in some people. Did you mean in gay men or what did you mean? Right. So uh, generally speaking, methamphetamine is a huge um, and very effective way to numb uncomfortable feelings. So I think uh, typically some of my gay clients uh, would be feeling some shame or some internalized homophobia uh, or some pain from some other addictive behavior. And meth is a great way to uh, just kind of disconnect or dissociate from those feelings. And and the, we've seen that a lot in gay men. It's been studied mostly in gay men, but we're seeing it now increasingly in heterosexuals, particularly among women, um, who are using methamphetamine in terms of sexual behavior and having the same effect. Well, and I, I would imagine that meth crosses over to the eating disorder world where people are desperately trying to be thin or have the perfect body, but then they're doing a drug that's highly addictive to get there. Yeah, and a very destructive drug. I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Say more. Uh, destructive meaning. Well, the uh, there's a temporary um, kind of ecstatic release of dopamine, but but the consequences of of meth use are really quite severe in terms of uh, actually being neurotoxic or destroying parts of the brain that distribute that dopamine, which which take months and months to regenerate. So people get very suicidal. People there's a lot of uh, cardiac issues, physical issues, as well as psychological issues. So it's a very serious drug. So this is a this is a biggie. This isn't one of your 
uh, I'll do this once in a while at a party and I'll have fun twice a year kind of drugs. This is a drug that you could take it once and be up for three or four days, not intending to be. You could feel great for a day or two and notice the fabulous weight loss effects and think, well, oh, I should be prescribed this. And then before you know it, you're in serious trouble, even without the sex. But we're talking about it. Now, you said something earlier that I, I might I might want to question, which is um, I think a lot of sex addicts uh, that I work with don't have drug and alcohol problems, about half of them. Uh, about half of them have already conquered their drug and alcohol problems before they start to look at their sexual behavior. It's unusual for me. And, and, and the thing about meth and sex is it almost creates, I think, sex addiction in the sense that most of the people I work with have early complex trauma. They've had emotional, a lot of emotional damage in childhood or young adulthood, which a lot of gay men do, certainly older ones. Um, but they don't necessarily become drug addicts. They often become sex addicts uh, or other kinds of addicts. They may become drug addicts. My point is, is that... Um, just because someone starts on on the route of doing a lot of sex doesn't mean they're going to become a sex addict. Just because they start out doing a lot of meth and then they pair sex with it, that may mean that they have a problem with sex and drugs later on when they're trying to clear that up. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they had a problem with sex all along, which might be the difference between a sex addict and someone who ends up with a paired addiction. Can you help explain all that stuff I just said? <laughs> I think it makes sense. Yeah, I think... Um there are people, certainly a lot of people have trauma, um, and not everyone goes on to become uh, either a drug addict or a sex addict. And I think oftentimes we see uh, more resilience than we identify in terms of a lot of people being exposed to drugs. For example, a lot of gay men I think, you know, take a, a whole lot of drugs in their 20s and 30s, and, and not all of them become mm-hmm. addicted per se. Um, the minority actually become addicted. But for those I guess the statistics say about 20% now uh, of serious drug users, they really um, have some serious consequences. I do think too that I can say probably most meth addicts are probably sex addicts Mm. um, in terms of the sexual behavior they do. And I think those, as we've spoken about before, those have to be treated really simultaneously. It's interesting what you said also about just, I think a lot of people in recovery from uh, substances can kind of transfer that addictive behavior to sex. And I think that's a big risk factor as well. Well, this is a good moment to talk about co-occurring addictions. You know, you and I are talking about serious drug use and serious sexual behavior where someone's up for days and they're taking other drugs. And But there are many things that are paired or become kind of co-stimulating. For instance, I work with a lot of women who have eating problems and sometimes when they put the food down, they'll pick up sex. I work with people who have non-addictive problems, like they hate themselves for their attraction to men, or they hate the fact that they want to become a woman, or they, you know, or they're dealing with the fact that they were raped, and or whatever it is that's going on with them, and they just want to escape. You know, they just want to escape, um, and they'll find any route to escape. But I think what I was saying to you, and I want to clarify because this is Sex Addiction 101, is that there are people who, I believe, have trauma and end up as sex addicts, and um, even if they start using meth, yes, they were sex addicts all along. But then I think we also have a population that you and I are talking about, which are people who maybe they had a little trauma, they had some issues, but they weren't necessarily at the level of a sex addict, but then they started doing meth and they paired the meth with the sex. And then the two became so self-reinforcing that they don't see the difference. And I've had clients say, I'm in a really terrible mood. I want to use, I want to use, I want to have sex. And it's all in the same sentence. It kind of becomes all one thing to them, right? I mean, that's kind of what it's like. Very much, I think, both behaviorally and, and if you look at studies in the brain where those two things actually kind of fuse together, so they become um, really one and the same. So one can trigger the other, 
Um, and if, we see that if people try to get clean from meth, oftentimes their sex, uh, sexual desire fades with that as well. So the two become really paired and, and work in tandem mm-hmm. in a way that, um, yeah, absolutely, one can trigger the other very easily. In fact, that's almost routine for a, a meth addict. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. You, David, you've heard me say my my line. You know, you've heard me say this. So I just want to say it here. I, I will when when I speak, I say, "Is there anyone who works with people who do excessive amounts of meth or coke and also have sex at the same time?" And then my question to them is, if you do work with those people, do, you know, as a part of their recovery, I think it's required number one that you go through their sexual histories with them, even though they're in for a drug problem, quote unquote, because oftentimes people who are doing meth have a lot of history of acting out sexually in ways they have a lot of shame about, a lot of self-hatred about, things they don't feel good about. And if you don't talk, if they don't talk about that in treatment, in their drug treatment, it's really uh, potentially something that might trigger them to go back to using. And the other piece that, that I always remind audiences that are treating, treating meth addicts is that they have to talk about sexual sobriety. What, what kind of sex is that person going to have when they're no longer using? Because we don't want them going back to those same places and those same people where they found the exciting drugs and sex, and now they're just going back for the sex, but they end up back on the drugs. Um, and that's a big problem in our field, right? Absolutely. I think, and I think part of it is the way we train. <clears throat> people tend to have specialties with substance abuse or sex, th- uh, sex addiction or sex therapy or related HIV, that kind of thing, but but they don't kind of overlap. And so I think we have many people in, a, in a, uh, substance addiction treatment centers uh, who are not getting adequately assessed for the sexual component of the sexual history and the intervention, and then the, therefore the, the acknowledgement of how those two interact with each other and reinforce each other. So then, David, I have to ask you a trick question. It's only a trick question because you didn't know it was coming. We both know that there's only really one pleasure system in the brain. There's only one direct route to feeling extreme pleasure and then a whole bunch of other chemicals that go along with it in the brain. And we haven't quite figured out what drives someone to be a gambling addict versus a sex addict versus having a problem with eating versus drinking. or We don't know what it is in the individual that leads them to a particular addiction. But I don't think there's any question that people can be just as addicted to behaviors as they can be to substances. And yet there seems to be a big struggle in the culture, in our, both in our therapeutic culture and also in the, the general culture about, oh, no, no, you know, food can't be an addiction or sex can't be an addiction because uh, those are naturally occurring functions. So they can never be addictive. And yet based on the work I'm doing and have for the last 25 years, I think they can. Why do you think, and you're more neutral than me. I mean, you were in the drug, you weren't really in the sex addiction field. So what, what do you think is this makes it so difficult for people to understand that an intensely pleasurable experience that can cause some fantasy based spacing out and dissociation can be addictive, even if it isn't a drug. Um, What do you think makes that so hard even among therapists? I know. I think um, there's been this kind of paradigm or, or understanding a model of how we view um, addiction, and it's been 
based on substances for for 50 or 60 years. And I think uh, basically people are having a hard time making that jump. It's it's obvious to me, I think it's obvious to you, that's the case, that there's these behavioral or process addictions. I think that what's kind of changing the, the current now is that we have such uh, complex brain scans that actually show the brain reacting in exactly the same way to sex or gambling versus um, alcohol or, or a stimulant. So I think that the evidence is kind of right there in everybody's face. And I, I think it's kind of a cultural resistance among certain um, uh, members of the profession. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite understand it myself because it seems just just so obvious. But uh, there is this resistance still and these currents of people. And, and frankly, I think they're doing their clients a huge disservice by kind of ignoring uh, that aspect of, of the problem. Well, we all do. I mean, uh, I don't think you and I do, but you mentioned this before. Uh, I don't think there's a treatment center in America, except maybe some, I would say maybe four or five in the country, that when they assess you for your drug or alcohol or mental health problem, will ask you anything about sex. And, um, you know, or even that much about eating necessarily or other natural occurring functions. So it's very hard to know if someone has a problem if you're not asking about it. It's interesting to me, and I, uh, you know, you've heard me say this before, David, that you know, masters and some PhD level therapists in this country have no training in human sexuality, and they have very little training in addiction, and yet one out of three marriages in America fail due to infidelity and sexual issues, <laughs> and uh, you know, an addiction is right. a, you know the one is uh, the leading cause of death in men over fifty in the country today. So clearly, we have a disconnect between what therapists are being trained and what the reality is of what we're being faced with. I try to influence this as much as I can, and I hope that I know that you do too. Do you think this is just like old? This is just me talking here now, but is this old fogeyism? Why can't we get our field to come around to? Well, I mean, sorry, I'm thinking of uh, like tech. How can we get our field to come around to tech? Um, no less new concepts that have to do with the realities of what their patients are facing. Sometimes I feel like we're living in the 1950s in our world. You know. Well, that's interesting because I think a lot of the um, the curricula in the graduate programs. Um, hasn't really been updated to acknowledge tech or or uh, sort of this idea of, of uh, different kinds of addictions. And, and I also think that in addition to not having training in human sexuality in general, I think a therapist uh, really should be required to, to do mm. some reflection on their own attitudes and beliefs about sex because I think that really is the, is the key here. Therapists will resist or deflect or defer or avoid uh, really to keep themselves comfortable and not really in the best interest of the clients. So some kind of an opportunity for a therapist to work that through. So what you're saying, and I, and I want to, I want to tell all you this folks who are listening this, you know, be careful who you choose as a therapist because um, we're not all excellent. We're not all great. Some of us are really kind of not so great. And just because we have a degree doesn't mean that we absolutely know what we're talking about or we know the area in which we are talking about. So, you know, just like I would go to my general practitioner, if I had a cold, um, and he could probably treat that, but if he found my uh, arm was broken, he might send me to you know a, a bone specialist, or somebody's going to set that arm and and do an MRI to see if I damage any ligaments. So, when it gets to specialty work, we need specialty therapists. And uh, unfortunately, in our nation, it seems like there isn't there isn't a lot of that in the therapy field. You kind of have to just go find someone and see what they're into. And yet, it's interesting. And just as I'm saying it, it strikes me that. It's very easy for me to find a doctor with a specialty. I can find a cancer doctor, a stomach doctor, a head doctor, you know, a head shrinker. I can, but I can't necessarily find a 
uh, a master's level therapist or a social worker or even a psychologist and just say, oh, yeah, their specialty is this or that because all of us are just specialists in therapy. But that's so broad. It's as broad as the medical uh, profession. It, I'm just venting here, but I'd love your feedback, David, because it's a big frustration for me. No, I absolutely agree with you, Rob. Uh, the, the, what we can do is look for different certifications, specialty certifications, like a certified sex addiction therapist would clearly have the, an adequate background to, to treat sex addiction and, and related issues. Uh, but, but I know that there's uh, national certifications for addiction specialties, which have different uh, vegetable letter soup in different states, but but in general, uh, in fact, I think probably universally, to get uh, certified as an addiction specialist, there's virtually mm -hmm. no training in sexuality or necessarily in recognizing mm -hmm. uh, those other behavioral addictions. So that doesn't necessarily uh, guarantee that you're going to get uh, someone who has adequate competency to deal with your problems either. If you have, a, say, an addiction specialist, so. And if you go online and you look for a sex addiction specialty program, you're going to find that everyone on the planet says that they treat it because online everyone says they treat everything. So how do you know where to find it? In fact, I, I, I don't mean to go too far off topic, but I will say that I, I have colleagues and peers who've worked in this field for many, many years who used to have places and people they regularly felt comfortable referring to. And now it seems harder and harder to find the, you know, you think it would be easier and easier with the internet, but it's actually become harder and harder right. to find a place or a situation that really works for a particular client. Um, I feel like I have to do a lot of advocacy for my clients to find the right situation and a lot of research for them that they can't do themselves because you have to know the right words. You have to know the right certifications. You have to know the right terminology. Again, you know, if I want a cancer doctor, I can find a cancer doctor. <laughs> but if I want a therapist who treats addiction or treats sex, or it's very hard for me to really figure that part out. David, I think we need to go in and fix this field a little bit. I'm in. I desperately is in need of, uh, I guess, some disruption to use uh, the new term. Um, but yeah, and, and I must, I will also say, just like treatment centers, uh, almost every therapist in their listing lists everything. You know, I, everybody lists an LGBT uh, competency or an addiction competency or behavioral that, and you really it, it becomes meaningless because. Uh, everybody's kind of listing everything. They may have taken a weekend course or one course or uh, an online course and, and they call themselves a specialist. And this is why I really want, uh, I wanted to bring this up to, to the, anyone who's listening because I think that you have to be very careful about who you choose uh, for help and be, and, and, and this is just, uh, I didn't mean to put this in David's show, but it's always worth saying, you don't have to see the first person you find. You don't have to see the second person you find. You get to therapist shop. Uh, it's important to find someone you feel comfortable with. So, David, if you were a client uh, yourself, knowing what we know, what kinds of questions would you ask if you were searching for a therapist, if you had a problem with, uh, you know, little, if you thought you had a little problem with drugs and sex, a little problem with food and alcohol, but you really want to find a good therapist, you know, what would you be asking of those people you were going to see to know that they had that expertise? Well, not knowing uh, if I, I didn't know the kind of certification letter, you know, the letters to look for after the name, I think one thing I would ask is, uh, just the level of experience dealing with, with substances and substance use and how that relates. Okay. So, so I'm going to do a role play with you. Let's do this. I'm going to be the, the fake therapist and you get to be the real client and try to see if you can get an answer from me that helps you. Okay. Okay. So go ahead. Let's, let's just try this for a second. So you're calling me and what would you like to know? Thanks for calling. I'd like, did you want to make an appointment? 
Uh, yeah, Rob, I'm, I'm just uh, interested in, in your experience in treating people that may have a little bit of a problem with, with some kind of substance uh, use. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up, David. I love treating addicts. I treat all the addictions. Addicts are some of my favorite people, and I really love working with them. Uh, have you have you had any specialty or experience treating uh, stimulants or spe- specifically methamphetamine? Well, you know, we we sure do have a big stimulant problem, and I have a lot of people coming in with those kinds of issues. And and what about your experience treating uh, sexual uh, issues and disorders? And- oh, we treat merit infidelity. We treat uh, uh, people with uh, uh, sexual issues, um, and we treat addiction. Yeah, yeah, you'd be great. Come come join us. I see. And what's your feeling about uh, how those two relate, the sex and the addictive piece, if they do? Well, I'd really, you know, I think if you came in and we sat down and talked about it, we'd be able to figure out that connection. <laughs> okay. David, I'm, 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 and folks, I'm giving Dr. poor Dr. Fawcett a hard time, but I'm trying to do it for your sake because yep. this is what you run into out there and trying to figure out what you really need and how to find it, especially, you know, with a problem like meth. And I, I have to say, um, I ran a stimulant and sex program for a while, and I probably will be running some others. In fact, if, if I'm lucky, David Fawcett and I will get to work together at some point. Yep. But um, I guess, you know, what I want to know is what, what do you think is, what would you do differently in these programs if, if we were to do this work? I mean, how, how could we make it better? Um, maybe all the way from that phone call to getting somebody into treatment. I mean, what are the major things you think that we really need to do to make the patient experience, um, you know, uh, uh, more comfortable and, and more accurate? Uh, boy, uh, we, how long, how much time do we have? Um, uh, there's a couple different things One in, in categories. One is kind of the, the, I think the therapist of the facility approach. I think we have to be hypersensitive to the level of shame and uh, and internalized fear and, and even trauma that a lot of the clients coming to us will have, and it's so easy to kind of reshame and restigmatize uh, that that it's all about an attitude and a uh, an, an openness to that client. But but on the other side, in terms of actual work, I think we do need to do a much better job doing a really thorough assessment, uh, a sexual history assessment, and I think again because a lot of therapists kind of don't want to go there or don't understand the significance of it, they won't go into a thorough history of, you know, when did they first have sex? How did they, how they uh, what did sex do for them? Was it a currency of some kind of validation? Did, did they mix it with other drugs? What was the patterns? Um, all of that kind of history is, is incredibly important. You know, it's funny, David, because I have, uh, when I talk to therapists, their fear is that when we ask about sex, especially if it involves drugs, if the client is going to be so embarrassed or uncomfortable that they're going to think that uh, they're going to wonder why we're asking these weird questions. When the truth is, every time I've asked those kinds of questions, a client just answers them and often seems glad that someone asked. I agree. And I think, uh, you know, our responsibility as therapists is kind of to create a safe container. And I think it, it says uh, something about you that the patients are willing to ask that because that's been my experience as well. Uh, oftentimes, nobody's asked that before, and they're anxious to tell it or share it. Or if they think it's important and will help them, they're going to share it. So I think a lot of the uh, the hesitation is really on the part of the therapist. We have a couple of stigmas running around that we uh, think you and I are working very hard to eliminate, and I hope that anyone listening will support. Um, certainly, we're trying to eliminate stigma against sexual orientation and people's choices around wh- who they want to love. Um, we really are both dedicated to reducing stigma around addiction 
because I, I think I can speak for both me and David. We don't understand why someone can openly talk about a family member having cancer and everyone wraps their arms around them, but they can't talk about their person having an addiction because they're too ashamed. That that's that's wrong and needs to be fixed. And then I think there's some stigma around. Um, really opening up the psychotherapy process to be just simple and open around basic sexual practices like we talk about eating and exercise. Um, I think all of those, it really isn't the possibilities that the therapy field has to help drug addicts and sex addicts and all kinds of people. I think we're still very much limited by our own limitations more than we are the process. Would you agree with that? Very much so. Uh, I think uh, it's a it really has to start with kind of an attitude change, and then there's a there's an information and training piece that has to be included there as well. Um, and the other thing I, I just see uh, is that oftentimes there's no vision there. We can't help the client envision what how sexuality is going to unfold in a healthy way in recovery. I think sometimes it's just kind of avoiding, stopping, um, and. Uh, Get, get a few days clean and good luck, goodbye, without really helping the client um, develop a, a way where they, to uh, get some healthy sex and intimacy that's meaningful for them. And, and that's going to also sustain their recovery. And I want to add to that, David, that this is a problem not just with um, your clients, but your average alcoholic, in my experience, will stop drinking and then go to meetings and start hitting on people. Because that becomes an immediate source of stimulation and excitement and distraction. It isn't as good as the alcohol, but for a few minutes. And so we, as people who treat addictions, really have to look at the whole person, the whole picture, and not just say, oh, well, good. Th and this is how it used to be. Oh, it's good. We dealt with that drug thing. Okay, now they're going to be fine. But we also have to think about their eating, their. Uh, they're gaming, they're gambling, they're spending, they're, you know, the whole behavioral picture of that person. If someone has an addiction, it, as we say in our field, it probably isn't just one anymore. And so you're right. We have to work with providers, therapists, and programs that are looking for all of it and, uh, and are, have the courage to ask about and be curious about all of it. And, and I want to put in certain, a uh, plug for you, David, in terms of your work. I have uh, been waiting for a really good book on meth and uh, stimulants and uh, uh, sex to come out, whether it was just for gay men or in general. And you wrote that book and uh, meth, lust and men. Did I say that right? Lust, men and meth. I'll never get that right, <laughs> but I know all three are in there. Lust, <laughs> men, lust, men and meth is really the best book that I have found that really speaks to how these things come together in the brain and how they affect the family, how they affect your life and your lifestyle and what recovery is like. And David, how would people reach you if they wanted to get a hold of you either for a session or just to talk to you about the book? What's the best way to reach you? Uh, through my website, uh, which is uh, www.david-fawcett.com. And there's a link there. They can uh, email me directly through that site. I would imagine, uh, David, that, or Dr. Fawcett, I think a lot of people are going to want, I mean, there are just questions about meth and about the drug and about getting off of it and about how it, and how to handle sex that I have a feeling there will be some people who may listen to this a year after recorded, five years after we've recorded it, who will be writing you notes saying, I'm too embarrassed to say anything to anyone, but maybe I could write you this note and maybe you would answer me because, boy, I get those every day. Um, I have a problem with sex and I don't know who else to turn to. Well, they could turn to anyone, but they're turning to a stranger because these things are so, so shameful and embarrassing. And if nothing else, um, it's our job to help uh, clear away some of that fog so people can look at themselves 
more clearly. Dr. David Fawcett, author and expert uh, in methamphetamines and uh, stimulants and sexual behavior, my guest for today and uh, my colleague and friend. Uh, David, thank you for your time. And I look forward to the opportunity to do a lot more help. And maybe the NIH will call us one of these days and say, hey, you know, or the National Institutes of Drugs and say, you know, we do see this paired problem. We're looking for some experts to help us understand it. Uh, maybe they'll come to us at some point. That would be great. And thank you for your kind words about the book, Rob. I appreciate it. We will talk some more. Thank you, Dr. David Fawcett. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.